Hi, this is Rob Long, one of the founders of Ricochet.com. The podcast you're about to listen to is a production of Ricochet.com, the home of center-right conversation about politics and culture on the web. If you've been listening to these podcasts for a while, you've probably heard about our site. Maybe you've even visited once or twice. Well, now I'm here to make you a special offer to join our growing community of civil and clever conversationalists and interact with contributors such as myself, Peter Robinson, John Yu, Richard Epstein, Pat Sajak, Mark and Molly Hemingway, Mona Charon, Jay Nordlinger, Paul Ray, Jay James Lilacs, Troy Senek, James Pathakoukas, Arthur Davis, James Dellingpole, and many, many more. In addition, create your own posts on our vibrant and lively and widely read member feed on any topic, culture, politics, sports, food, you name it. Interact with like-minded conservatives from around the country and across the world. Listen to our podcast being recorded live and live chat with your fellow members. Even attend in-person meetups across the country. It's quite simply the best community on the web and the most fun you can have with a keyboard. Join Ricochet today and get a free 30-day membership. Go to ricochet.com slash offer now. That's ricochet.com slash offer and claim your free 30-day membership on me. Now on with the show, and I'll see you in the comments on Ricochet. This episode of Glop Culture is brought to you by Acculturated.com. Acculturated.com is where pop culture matters. Check it out. That's Acculturated.com. And welcome to the first Glop Culture podcast of 2015. I'm John Podhoritz, sitting in a hotel room in Washington, D.C., just a mile away from Jonah Goldberg, who is in his palatial offices atop the AEI building. Hi, oh, Jonah. Uh, hi, John. It's great to have you in town. The whole mood of the city is different. From <laughs> it's true. It's like a wintry mix, <laughs> as we say. And uh, and in, in uh, peripatetic uh, journeying between New York, somewhere between New York and Los Angeles is Rob Long. Hi, Rob. John, how are you? I'm Hi, a, Jonah. I'm a wintry hey, Rob. mix, Rob. You're a wintry. I love a wintry mix. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it kind of brings a party alive. You know, hey, do you guys have any more of that wintry mix? <laughs> it's like <laughs> the cereal and pretzels and little cheese and things, some nuts, and then yeah, some nuts and nuts. some pine cones. Yeah, wintry mix. Right. Well, um, you know, uh, we are we are 24 hours away as we speak now from the. Uh, from the announcement of the uh, of the Oscar nominations, and already, already, I'm bored to death. Bored to death bored by this death. award yeah. season. Oh. This well, is I, the most boring award season ever. I, first of all, I love the fact that people that you know that people not in show business now use show business terms like award season. Like someone who not in show business said to me because I, 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 I'm living in New York and I have a house in L.A. and every now and then I rent it out and someone said, well, yeah, I'm sure your house can be fully booked for award season. And I'm like, well, that's like a weird thing that we say in L.A. just because we really mean that kind of crazy time between the Golden Globes and, and the Oscars. It's like you know the Catholic calendar between Ash Wednesday – between the Lent and Easter. Like it's, sometimes it seems like it's 60 days and sometimes it seems like it's tw- uh, two weeks. It's all, you never really know. That's the case here. Uh, the Oscars are early. So they had to cram in all the awards that nobody paid any attention to years ago. The WGA Awards, the DGA Awards, the the SAG Awards. These are like little award shows that just kind of 
jumped in and they make a little bit of money. You know, some some TV network will broadcast them. So yes, it is boring, but you've just begun. It has just begun. So, John, Rob, can I ask you one yes. question about this? Go right ahead. Go right ahead. When do you take down your award season decorations around the house? <laughs> well, that's a really good question, Jonah, because I don't. I'm one of those guys <laughs> that celebrates award season all year round. <laughs> that is very, that is very, very moving. Now, of course, you know the the uh, the the way in which gotten so Hollywood Hollywood jargon has infected the larger culture over the over the last twenty years is really startling. I mean, I don't think anybody ever knew the word grosses before. I remember uh, yeah. 30 years ago when I was editing the art section of the Washington Times and I started running an article every Monday uh, detailing the week's box office grosses and no one had ever done that before. I mean it, just around then was, was so when people – no one knew what movies made – no no one outside yeah. of Hollywood knew what movies made money and what movies didn't make money. Nobody cared. Well, you knew what a big now, blockbuster was. You knew what Star right. Wars was. But you couldn't, yeah. you couldn't say, oh, they had a great first weekend that tailed off. And you also like – years ago, I remember uh, the back page – I think it was – I can't remember what it was. It wasn't Friday. It might have been one of these weekdays. Uh, of the of the life section of the USA Today, they would actually print the full Nielsen grid for the week. This this piece of like incredibly arcane information that no person needs to know except right. maybe yeah three dozen people in the TV business in Hollywood need to get to keep track of it. But somehow they they did that, and and you can you people say it all the time. I mean, people who don't know, you know, aren't even in the business will say things like, "Oh, uh, are you the showrunner on that show?" Like, yeah, wh- why are you using that term? <laughs> That's a weird. Yeah. It's just weird. Yeah, you know the the oddity of this award season is that it is likely that at least five, there are going to be, I think, nine or ten best picture nominees now announced tomorrow. At least five, if not more. Are all docudramas? Selma, The Imitation wow. Game, Unbroken, right. um, American Sniper, and Foxcatcher are yeah, all, all are all. I, although every single one of them is a you know wild distortion of the realities that they are portraying from what one can tell. Well, nothing, nothing's wilder than Selma, right? In, in Selma, LBJ is actually portrayed as against the civil rights movement. Right. Well, Selma's an interesting – I mean I didn't like Selma. I'm like the only person – I'm the only critic in America who, who, who dared say that Selma was boring, which I think it is. Um, what it does with LBJ, which I, a lot of people haven't haven't really reckoned with, is – that it doesn't say that he was against the civil rights movement. What it says is that he told King at, sorry, at the beginning of the movie that he had bigger fish to fry. He wanted to you know, start the war in poverty and he had to win in Vietnam and he had bigger fish to fry and King should hold off. And King said, we can't wait. Right. And Johnson was angry and in the biggest distortion in the movie sets J. Edgar Hoover on King. Right, um, right. Something that never happened. But the the arc, the moral arc of the movie is that Lyndon Johnson is the American people. That is, he's a fine per. He's okay. He so he wants better rights for and voting rights and all nice things for black people. But he doesn't care that much. And it's not his central concern. And he's got other things he's worried about. And as the movie goes on, he gradually comes to understand, particularly after an encounter with 
George Wallace, the governor of Alabama, that it can't wait and that he has to go forward. Now, I submit this isn't this isn't a, this isn't a terrible rendering of Johnson, who was, after all, a titanically uh, incoherent political yeah. thinker and 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 emotionally inconstant, and you know, veered wildly from one extreme to the other, but successful. Um, but successful, but you know, but somebody who, you know, he he did he did a great many good things and a lot of bad things, but a lot of what he did was sort of situational and based on emotion. Anyway, the point about Selma is, out of nowhere, out of nowhere, ninety-five-year-old Lyndon Johnson aides are coming out of you know retirement yeah. homes to write angry op-eds, which by the way. By the way, hurts the movie. Hurts the movie. Hollywood, the, the Academy, and all those people—they are basically ninety-year-old LBJ vets. That's what they are right. temperamentally. Yeah, yeah, no, that's so right. they're not—they're not, they're not going to like this. They don't like it at all. It'd be like making, making a movie where RFK is seen as a bad guy. It's just not going to—you know. And that is the key. The question is, where did all this come from? This kind of sustained attack that happened. Literally a day after the movie opened, or barely opened anywhere, and you—this is the moment at which paranoids in show business start wondering, okay, who's behind this? Because, for example, in Joseph Califano, the Johnson aides much discussed piece in which he says Johnson was respond told King to go to Selma, which is ridiculous. It sort of concludes by saying. You know, Hollywood awards givers should take note, uh, you know, of this. <laughs> so it's like, okay, so you, it, it's one of these things like, okay, who's benefiting here? You know, and who's benefiting is who benefits the imitation game and, and right, right. the other movies that want to win Best Picture. And the imitation game happens to be the the awards yeah. season <clears throat> pick of uh, Harvey Weinstein of the Weinstein Company, the man who invented the negative campaign. Uh, and, and, and also the positive campaign. I mean, Harvey Weinstein is right. really good at it. The problem yeah. is that the imitation game was shut out of the Golden Globes. The yeah. weird thing about the Globes is the Globes, which happen on Sunday, are, were, were for years just a complete, complete fraud. It was a you know a half a dozen or a dozen um, Hollywood Foreign Press Association members uh, for for I think for thirty years it was like it was like six Serbians and they had a dusty little <laughs> office up a eighty six like I think um, the number is eighty six well it's eighty six now members. oh but uh-huh. you know they've been giving it away for a while the, the idea was that you you band together as journalists into a little a press association and therefore you get invited to all the premieres and you get a lot of gifts right so the the studio publicity machine will invite you to stuff and you get to eat free shrimp and you get to kind of like a hobnob and and it's fun right and and then you give it an award so that means they're gonna they're gonna kind of kiss up to you for a little bit. Now they didn't really do that for a long time. They didn't really care. Um, the Hollywood, the, the the Golden Globes are like maybe one step above the uh, People's Choice Awards, which are really shady, where they call uh-huh. you ahead of time and tell you you're going to win. And the, the Hollywood Foreign Press, even up until my, my first Globes, I think it was '91, they would call <clears throat> the winners, the, the the famous winners. And say, I, we are pretty sure you're going to get a Golden Globe on Sunday. Will, do you think you'll be in attendance? Because they had to fill the room, right. and um, and with famous people. And if you and if the the star said no, I don't think I will, then they would say okay, and then it would go to somebody else. Like right. you know, the idea was it, it, for for it to be a good TV show, you need famous people. So 
Um, one the you year are, I, you, I just, I just to be, you are ruining the spirit of award season. <laughs> yeah, well, it's gotten so commercial, Jonah. I feel like we really ought <laughs> to know the truth behind it. This is there's a there's a spiritual reason for it, and a lot of these people have just like they just built businesses on top of it. It's disgusting. You know, I think um, that next year the Golden Globes should go out and they should find a little wounded little Christmas tree and bring it home. Globe. And a wounded little a, actor. That's right. Yeah. And put a little Golden Globe oh. ornament on it that makes it bend over. And then Linus can make a, you know, can read from the gospel according to Matthew. And we can well, all, I don't we know. Can I all cry. I, I didn't know you were going there when you said it makes it bend over. Uh, the, the, the truth <laughs> is that, like, the Globe – here's, here's the thing. The Globe started as, like, a fraud, right? Right. And then they got enough – stars by hook or by crook to show up and really 1991 was the first year uh-huh. 1990 1991 first year they all showed up and they all showed up kind of spontaneously no one knew in fact in 91 it was so surprising is either 91 or 92 it was so surprising that um everyone showed up that uh there were no after parties planned no one knew what to do after the show <laughs> uh seriously it was kind of wild um we all went to uh, trader vicks around the corner um uh, did you I, have I, the Did you have the poo poo platter? Uh, yeah, of course. And I paid for Kathy Bates uh, had won for misery, and I paid for Kathy Bates to call her mom because, of course, the show was not televised nationally. Her mother had no idea she won a Golden Globe for misery, I think, and she, and she had no quarters. And of course, this is you know for you uh, for you young people, this is before you had the smartphones and the flip and the whatever and the tweets. <laughs> um, and she didn't have a quarter, and Robin Williams didn't have a quarter, and so Robin Williams and I. Uh, were with Kathy Bates when she was at the at the phone. Uh, I don't know these people, but I mean, she was the phone, a payphone, and I I knew I had memorized my AT and T calling card number. Oh, so, I remember doing that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. so so yeah. she dialed, and then when it beeped, I put in my AT and T credit card number, and she called her mom. You know, you are a witness to history. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That is a that is a you are the Joseph Califano of the Golden Globe Awards. I like to if think I can that. Just I, say. I, I like to think that I'm a I, I'm a I'm a an obs, uh, a former Carter administration official secretary. <laughs> right? Now the funny thing about the Globes, and we should then move 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 off this off this ridiculous topic. But the funny thing is, no more Globes, they, more awards. Let's so keep award season a, alive in our hearts, John. <laughs> but they they became God bless uh, us everybody. A very watchable. They became an incredibly watchable television event. Yeah. Because um, everybody drank. Everybody's drunk. It was, yeah. and, and, and so, you know, Jack Nicholson won some award and he got up and he was completely out of his mind drunk and he started, he turned around and imitated Jim Carrey talking out of his behind and stuff like that. And it was kind of startling. And, you know, everyone is staying there like falling off their chairs because they're all drinking champagne and drunk. And now, of course, it's become a real stop, uh, an important. PR event uh, in the year, and so people are now much more careful, and the show is now boring, like all award shows, and so therefore its ratings have gone down like thirty percent over the last two or three years because it's no longer the kind of moment at which you see the stars unplugged. But I'm still struck by the fact that we are now in a period in which, literally, you know, half to two thirds of the de- highly decorated films that everybody talks about and and win all these awards are all these kind of you know fictionalized histories i don 't really know quite what it means um, maybe it 's because 
people are so eager for some form of verisimilitude, uh, you know, or some some idea of learning something. I don't know that that no. uh, that this has become the this has become the you know the big thing. But it's it's kind of startling if you think about it. You want my theory? And then, yeah. uh, uh, Jonah, are you there? I'm here. I, feel I, like I, just, I don't. I don't have cocktails. I yeah. don't have a, I don't have a huge. I, I am neither invested in the Golden Globes, nor do I have a lot of like personal anecdotes about lending Kathy Bates a quarter so she can finish her Dragon Bowl and call her call her mom from Trader Vic's. So I'm sitting here silently, you know, listening and vibing the wisdom from you Altacacas, and it's great. So go on, no. tell, tell me more about the Golden Globes. No, but once, but once <clears throat> Jonah once. used. <clears throat> Once Jonah was at a payphone, yeah, and he allowed Murray no, noted libertarian scold Murray Rothbard to use <laughs> to use well, his AT and T calling card. I get a sense from to him call from Russell Kirk. To call I get a Russell sense from Kirk him from C-SPAN that he's just the nicest guy. Is he is he nice in person? Yeah. Um. <laughs> uh, Here's you know not to not to um, not to go. I don't I don't I'm not going to share any more anecdotes about my my star struck life. But um, the two things. I'll I'll wait and see how that prediction. (laughs) One, the Gobes. They there's free wine. There's wine at the table, but there's a cash bar at the at the back of the room. You got to pay. So a lot of people forget to bring cash, and I think that helped. Um, kind of r- r- uh, lower the 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 just absolutely knee walking drunk quality of some of it, and it made it less interesting. But the, I think the reason for the historical dramas are maybe people are interested in American history. It doesn't seem like they are. Certainly, no one in Hollywood is really interested in it. But if you have on the one hand all of these big giant CGI superhero movies, and now you have to make because there are just enough people there, you got to make some other smaller movies. What happens is. People in Hollywood have no imagination, so they don't really want to read an original script anymore. No one's going to read the script and say, I love this story that you invented out of whole cloth. That's terrifying to them. That means that if they greenlight it, if they put the money behind it, they're putting the money behind something that doesn't even have – it's not even true. And so they're, they like the idea of having existing – they call existing material – and his historical existing material is the safest of all because, hey, it really happened. So if the movie's boring or no good, at least it's not my fault because I didn't, I, I didn't approve this. I, I approved a bad story. It's real. So right. that's kind of how that works. I mean, it's all about fear. Right. You know. By the way, <clears throat> one one last showbiz note. I want to. I read. There's an absolutely fascinating piece in this week's New York Magazine. I don't know if it's online because I actually read it. In the magazine, um, but in in Rob's uh, business, um, uh, there's a guy named Eddie Wang who wrote a uh, a memoir of growing up um, as a you know as an as an Asian American called Fresh Off the Boat that was purchased and it's a was purchased and 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 the series debuts this week on ABC and it is an account of his rage at what happened to his memoir. When it was taken and put through the sitcom pilot season grinder, um, and it's a it's a it's a fascinating, angry piece. You never see anybody write these things anymore, in which they honestly take account of the fact that they wrote something. Hollywood right. takes it, bodlerizes it. Now, I, I mean, he sounds like a jerk, by the way, but nonetheless, it is it's really striking because he's sitting there saying. That's not what happened. 
you're falsifying this. You know, this isn't, you know, it's more interesting the way I talked about it in my book. Right. You're just right. making everything into pablum. And, well, yeah, and, but, you know, it's for ABC. That's the thing about these people. He, he, you know, Eddie Wong, by the way, if you're in New York City, Bauhaus is on, I think, 14th between 3rd and Park Avenue South, um, I think, or Madison. I'm not sure. Uh, it's really great. Um, little He makes little dumplingy things and little um, pork buns. Very good. Um, but look, the book sold – just say the book was the most popular book ever and it, it sold uh, 200,000, 300,000, 400,000 copies, right? Um, that's nothing. That's not, that's not an audience. And he sold it for a lot of money to ABC, which has to reach millions of people in order to be successful. And they paid him a lot of money and they paid everybody involved in a lot of money. Now they got to recoup their investments. So naturally they're going to want to make adjustments right. because I know he thinks that his way is best and it probably is best by the way. I'm not even disagreeing with him, but you can't, you can't sell your stuff to like the big guys who are in mass media and then complain that they've behaved exactly the way mass media behaves. Right. I mean, right. it's just it's just like give me a it's just childish. It's like what, right. But if what you're did interested, you right, but if you're interested in this if you find this kind of subject, you know, b- how how things are done behind the scenes. There hasn't been a, there hasn't been a, a you know, a piece of journalism like this in a very long time. So New York Magazine yeah. Eddie, also- Eddie Wang who runs a nice restaurant <clears throat> on 14th Street. Also. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, Rob, it really for a while there sounded like a really kind of racist non sequitur to just mention a Chinese restaurant out of nowhere. <laughs> but it's nowhere. his restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that he owns this restaurant. <laughs> you know, I love talking to Jonah Goldberg and John Pedorz. By the way, Katz's Deli on Ludlow and East House, uh, East House. Delicious, delicious, wonderful food. That I think you people really should be proud of yourselves. Thank you very um, much. That pastrami so, thing you do, wonderful, wonderful. So, you know, so we have been avoiding uh, over the last 15 minutes the elephant in the room, which is, of course, the event, uh, you know, the events in, in, in Paris, uh, the the massacre at uh, Charlie Hebdo and then the massacre at the at the kosher supermarket and the um, and the subsequent question of whether or not Europe – is now in a position where it's going to get serious about understanding the depths and significance of the problem it has with this, um, you know, with this very large uh, uh, influx right. of right. of Muslims um, whom who to who are not in any way, sense, or shape or form uh, assimilated, acculturated. Uh, um, given a given a sense of uh, ownership in the larger society. Uh, left to their own devices, and uh, and uh, you know, and now you know, we have the horrifying prospect of you know, seventy years after the Holocaust, the very lo- the very real possibility that that Jews are going to find it impossible to remain as residents of Europe uh, now that they are so wildly outnumbered. Um, not only are they outnumbered by Muslims in the case of France nine to one, but um, are, un- are, are go undefended by the larger culture against against this kind of the depredations. There have been thousands and thousands of uh, hate crimes against Jews since 2006 in France, murders, assassinations, killings of children, bombings, riots, 
Um, and you know the 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 French response has been ineffectual in the extreme, and now you know now you have this yeah. uh, event in which Al Qaeda stages an attack on a publication in the center of Paris. Cops ride up on their bicycles, see the attack going on, and ride away on their bicycles. Yeah, that was um, it was interesting because on, on Ricochet. Um, and I know we we probably have a pre-roll little thing that I do to tell you to go to ricochet.com. But if you're listening to this, you should go to ricochet.com right now and read what Claire Berlinski has been writing for the past yeah. week. Claire was there about 10 or 15 minutes after the attack, right on that street. And she's been following the story. She get, gives you this – a couple uh, um, a couple days ago, she did this fantastic – you know what they say in journalism, a TikTok timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, it's chilling and um, – that's also a little a lot of her heroism. I mean, she's really quite. She's very, very fair and even-handed to French security forces. The police, the municipal police, are different from the, um, the incredibly sophisticated, um, quasi-military militarized police action that uh, uh, um, uh, raided the guy, uh, um, the, the one of the Charlie Hebdo mass uh, assassins, and the uh, raided the um, the, the kosher. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. Um, on the coasters of market. So they're not terrible. Uh, but yeah, creepy and weird. And also, um, I mean, strange because I think, like, I mean, I, I guess I can say this here, right? Char- Charlie Hebdo w- was like South Park. That's what it was like. Exactly. People go, people say, oh, it was like John Stewart and all that. No, it was South Park. It was crude. In many ways, it was like incredibly embarrassing and rude and nasty. And um, not, I mean, not really all that funny. Uh, it to needs to my taste or to a lot of American taste. I mean, it was it was it was a really downscale kind of loudish magazine right. that the French kind of allowed themselves to to uh, to um, you know it, was, it, it tickled the French funny bone in that weird way that the French funny bone tickles. By the way, you know how you say funny bone in French? How? It's they call it the petit juif. <laughs> the little Jew, not kidding. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's so so a lot of stuff is built into that culture. Um, anyway, so uh, so the, um, so so it's weird that it, just hearing people talk about like their the the offensive cartoons, like everything in that magazine was offensive, everything, um, and somehow the French just kind of put up with it. Uh, and I'm just surprised that. I'm just surprised that after the 2011 firebombing of the of the building, that there wasn't more security, or maybe the security got lax. I'd be interested. I mean, we don't know that yet. It'd be interesting yeah. to know just how 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 much they felt like they had that situation under control. I mean, in America, we'd have a gigantic inquest, and it'd be like six months of people of investigation and all that stuff. And the French are a lot more tight lipped, and we'll probably never know. Well, it's a very – it's an extraordinarily distressing, you know, phenomenon. It's a, a very telling fact about, about you know, Western culture now as I wrote in a column last week that, you know, the, the great battles over censorship and free expression in the course of, you know, Western history over the last three, de- three centuries have largely been about high art, you know, the suppression of Ulysses, the suppression of Lolita – the jailing of Voltaire and Diderot, you know, the mistreatment of Flaubert over Madame Bovary, Theodore Dreiser over Sister Carrie. And now, you know, it's a fascinating phenomenon that that it is this kind of gleefully sophomoric 
right. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah stuff that we are now called upon to defend um, in the name of, you know, in the name of free expression. But, you know, you don't get to pick your, you know, if this is yeah. the, if this is where the war has been declared, you got to do know, it. Yeah. It's not, you know, we, are you we, a fan of South Park? That's why um, I, I wrote a comment about this last week. You know, I, I, that's why I, this was an unequivocal win for the bad guys. This whole episode, no matter how it plays out, this was a win. You know, everyone's talking about how galvanized Western Europe is and the three million copies of the new issue and yada, yada, yada. But no matter how you slice it, you know, we're in a situation where, you know, I mean, there's a reason why Lenin used to refer to, you know, his philosophy was the worse, the better. And when you live in a moment where radicals um, create a crisis mentality – um, and, and, and create actual crises, you know, not just the mentality, but the, the, the real crises that underlie them. You force everybody to, to, to take extreme positions. And so now here we all are. None of us, I think, in a normal situation where Muslim terrorists weren't murdering people, none of us would want to run most of the crap that Charlie Hebdo ran. But we're left with no choice but to defend running it. And the problem is, is that so now we all run it, and we all defend it, and we all run to the ramparts. And I'm a hundred percent in favor of defending running it. And I'm glad National Review ran it. I'm glad the Weekly Standard ran it, all that stuff. But in a, in a in a healthier society, we wouldn't run that stuff because it's it is offensive. Yeah, right. But the problem is, you can't be held hostage to people who murder people over this kind of thing. And so, but the problem is, is that the other side of the argument is right too. This does offend non. Muslim terrorists, you know, it offends normal Muslims um, to do some of this kind of stuff. And so you create a climate where heads we win, tails they, you know, we lose because right, it's, right. It, it's, it's, there's no, the center doesn't hold. And so mm-hmm. now we're going to, you know, and, and you force the White House into this position, this idiotic position of just lying, flatly lying to the American people <laughs> and to the world about, what the nature of the terrorist threat is, you know, it's the kind of stuff that would make Orwell weep. Um, because I'm not sure is, you have to force this White House into lying. By the way, I'm not sure. No, you but, to, but I, I mean, <laughs> I, it's yeah. very clear as a matter of philosophical principle they are lying. I mean, it's different than lying about yeah. when they found out about the IRS, you know, targeting of Tea Party groups. This is they had meetings. They've clearly had meetings, and they've said we are not going to call this. You know, radical Islam, we're not going to call it jihadi, we're not going to call it any of those things, uh, based upon some purely abstract theory of how the Muslim mind worked at, works and how the theology of Islam is. And it's ridiculous, and it forces people – I mean, I, I, I don't know what kind of email you guys get or what kind of tw- Twitter traffic you guys get, but I get a lot of stuff from people insisting – that all 1.6 million, 1.6 billion yeah. Muslims are the problem. Islam is the problem. There's no peace with this religion, um, yada, yada, yada. And while as a theological matter, there may be a very strong argument there. As a practical matter, we cannot be in the position of publicly making the argument that we are at war with 1.6 billion people, most of whom aren't blowing people up and murdering right. people. But, you I, know, I, here's the thing. Isn't it, a, isn't it a scale issue? I mean, if if – Ninety percent of the Swedenborgs uh, in the world uh, are want to blow up buildings. That's still about you know hundred people, maybe three hundred people. Right. If one percent of the Muslims, which I think is what it pretty much is, are active jihad, not active jihadists, but actively support jihad, 
That's a mil. That's a hundred million people. Yeah, and but also the number of people. I mean, I was looking at some Pew data. The number of the percentages of people who support, for example, stoning of women who commit adultery in places like Pakistan and Saudi Arabia are huge majorities. Right. You know, so you know, and as as America was flipping out about the beheading of two American journalists by ISIS. You know, Saudi Arabia was, as a matter of law and policy, beheading, you know, citizens all the time. And it still does. Yeah. There's a blogger who got, you know, is, is getting flogged and lashes. He's being flogged. Yeah, and I think they're doing it over. He's doing it over like three weeks. So it's not that bad. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, a layaway. Yeah. yeah. It's basically no. like a like life cycle like or one of those, you know, uh, Bikram. But look, the simple fact of the matter is you break problems down. You disaggregate a problem in order to solve it. You can't solve a problem at its root if it's, you know, on on a scale far too massive for anybody even to contemplate. That's why the issue is not that is raised by Charlie Hebdo and what happened in the supermarket is not Islam. It is the French and how they behave toward and allow to behave and deal with this, you know, ten to twelve percent of the population that has that is now, you know, is now defines itself as Muslim comes. You know, a lot of them are now born in France, but a lot of them come from North Africa, and and they have basically decided that they are left to their own devices. They should run their own communities. They can live among themselves. They are mired in these banlieues, the slums outside Paris, and and they're not French. They're it's not French. Uh, it's pronounced uh, banlieue. Banlieue, excuse the me. Bon, right. No, bon, no, wait, wait. Banlieue. Bon no, no, no. Banlieue. You. You. No matter how many times you say it, you won't, they'll, they'll tell you you're pronouncing it wrong. Exactly so, right. So you, you break it down. In other words – this is a domestic French problem that has to do with 30 years of inattention, neglect, um, and and sort of using multiculturalism as an excuse for a, a kind of you know uh, anti-universalist nationalism that says if you're not born if you're not born in France and haven't lived five generations in the soil, <clears throat> you're not French and we don't care about you. And fundamentally, that is, by the way, the problem with Jews in France as well is that is that it, it, no matter how long <clears throat> how long they've lived there, uh, no matter how old their families might be, they are Jews. They are not French, and that is why, in my estimation, mm-hmm. an enormous number of them, not just for security reasons, but because they have, but because it has been exposed to them that their belief, just like the you know just like in the in the early part of the 20th century that their belief that they could live fully french or fully european lives as jews because most of them are secular and all of that is now blasted out of all recognition it can't be done they have to choose they either have to stop being jews if they can which you know i'm not sure i'm not sure their enemies would allow them to or they they can't they won't be able to remain but for generations to I, come. I, I would just say this about France since we're we're talking about France. France is a a, 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 a vociferously secular nation right now. 
it is and and it has been for a while. It is it is in many ways I wouldn't say anti-religious, but it is an inhospitable to religion. The the nation of France, French Catholics say this, um, and so part of the problem with uh, I don't know about the Jew, uh, Jews in, in France, but Muslims in France is that if they want to be religious, it makes them like doubly weird there first of all because they're religious and that's just such a strange thing in france the french have always loved their ideas sort of the, the cartesian rationality you know they're always you know they love that stuff that's why after the french revolution they decided to rationalize the months so there were 10 months of the year you know right. thermidor and cuspidor and humidor yeah, that, and i don't know that word. worked out really well <laughs> yeah, yeah that's great uh, yeah. um so 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 it's weird but I, I actually feel like that's also the problem with um sort of devout Muslims in general in the West. It's that they are uh, – we, we, we have had a couple hundred years, 300 years of secularization of our religious beliefs. Even though we have religious people in the United States, they still, they still know they got to like – they got to fit in, right? And they're always complaining about stuff, rightly or wrongly, but they know that ultimately when push comes to shove, the Supreme Court's going to vote you know, for the secular answer. Um, and these and, and this group, this one percent or two percent, some of whom are in Europe, by the way, um, they don't know that yet. And and the and the solution is like all these solutions. It's like nobody wants to talk about it because it's so uh, it's so impossible to enforce. But the solution is be less religious. Don't believe as much as you believe, because that's what the West has done for the past three hundred, four hundred years, and that's what you got to do. And that I think is just untenable. I mean, maybe these civilizations don't belong together right now. There's, there's, there's that possibility. Right. Well, I, I mean, I, I don't know that. <clears throat> Again, the issue is not whether or not they should or should not be less religious. the The question is whether the life, uh, the the way that they choose to live their the way that they live their lives according to you know doctrines that that they lay down are in direct conflict with fundamental Western values. That's not to say secularism or not secularism. It means sort of like, you know, the, the, the integrity uh, and uh, the integrity and centrality of the individual. So that, which is that at the root of why, you know, which is why women, why egalitarianism, you know, toward women uh, after many centuries is now, you know, the doctrine in all these countries, and why, why this is now happening with, you know, on, on matters of gay rights and all of that. That we we accept in the West, our our doctrine is that the individual is at the center. You know, is liberty resides in in the you know in the person of the individual, and and freedom and all good things reside from what is in the individual, and that is not that is that is something to which you know. But I'm, I'm just throwing ra- this out. Radical it's Islam like, yeah. is is you know radical Islam in particular is you know directly hostile. But this this may not be. I mean, I'm just I'm I'm really just throwing this out. Um, isn't it? I mean, we we seem to always be twisting ourselves into. Uh, into some words or a debate or language to try to avoid what may in fact be true, which is that it may be just that these two cultures right now, the culture that is a deeply religious and committed to uh, uh, the, the the laws and rules of Islam over, you know, not just in the Quran but in the Hadith, so not just the not just the holy book, but in all the traditions around the holy book. Um, 
and maybe those they just can't live in Holland or France, which is a, a, ultimately a totally yeah. secular nation. Maybe they just can't. That's just well, it. I, 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 did you guys see the clip from the mayor of Rotterdam? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he was yeah. great. You know, he just basically says, "If you can't live in a liberal society, f off and get right, out of here." Except but, the problem. Except the problem is, this is like you know, we should deport all twelve million. Mexicans, and you know, and actually in a much more uh, serious way, which is uh, Muslims now make up twelve percent of France's population. They're not going anywhere. I right, mean, they shouldn't. They shouldn't live there, but they're going to, and they're not mm-hmm. going anywhere. And you know, and two million or three million of them are citizens, and they're not going anywhere. So, right. what do you do then? And part of it is, and I, I don't want to sound like excessively sentimental, but you have if you don't give. If you don't give people a stake in the society in which they live, they are going to look for a society in which they have a stake. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, that's the problem with Rob Rob's formulation a little bit is that um, the 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 guys who are the biggest threat to Europe aren't the ones who are born into rigorously observant Muslim households. They're these deracinated, you know, scummy kids who all of a sudden. Are in a search for meaning, and they find it in this westernized, sort of radicalized version of jihad. And you know, Mark Gerecht has been writing the same piece for the Weekly Standard for a long time on this exact point: is that there is, you know, the the the, the problem that Europe has over the United States is they're so bad at assimilation that they have these completely aimless. Young bitter men in these in the Benelieu or however you pronounce it, you know, 40, 50 percent unemployment rates, and these lost souls. The only place they can find meaning is in and this kind of crap, and that's where they go, and that's that's why Europe is a bigger problem. Than the United States does yeah. with their domestic. And look, Muslims. we've seen we've so, seen this. This is a you know these are classic patterns of alienation even in western societies i mean it's where you know it's where though it was a much smaller phenomenon but arguably in some senses more dangerous but this is where you know the 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 um where communist spydom came from as well the sense that the sense that you know western culture was sort of had lost its Uh meaning um, or you know liberal democratic culture or something was nothing and there was something better and something higher and something and something that it was not only so, good but worth betraying where you lived for something better. That's, that's so the, the one thing you don't see in Europe. I mean, can we just bash Europe for a little bit? And I know you have to. You, then, John, I think you have to talk about acculturated or right. one of our yes, sponsors. But before, you, like, one thing you don't see in Europe and you don't see it in Britain. And something Claire Berlinski said on, um, I think she said it on, on Ricochet. So if you you go to Ricochet and look up Claire, Claire Berlinski and, and, and read this, she said actually, and she she's in France right now. She said actually, she thinks that Britain is going to be worse off. Because you, which one thing you don't see in those countries, really any of those countries in Europe, is a robust, unashamed, unembarrassed kind of corny patriotism. You really don't see it. They're kind of cynical and um, negative, and you don't see that in, in Britain. You know, you saw a great flourishing of it under Margaret Thatcher, but it kind of returned to its kind of like European irony, uh, British irony kind of thing, um, where they're just a little too cool for school. Right. Whereas in America, you you know, people march down the street and our president says, God bless America. After every speech, they don't say God bless uh, France. Um, and we wear the lapel pin and we're kind of unabashedly. We have something that we believe in. 
right? Whether it's a – I don't want to call it a religion, but it's definitely a philosophy and a belief that this is a great country and that there are a lot of opportunities here. It's not perfect, but we're all, we're all in it together. There is a, a great corny, sweet attitude about being an American that even when people are arguing for opening the borders or for amnesty, whatever it is, it still appeals to your sense of patriotism. That This is a great mm-hmm. country. It's so great. People want to come here and we should you – know, whether you agree with it or not, that's, that's mostly the argument. We should embrace the people who want to come here. They don't have that in, in Europe. They really don't have anything like that. So in that old um, G.K. Chesterton uh, um, uh, aphorism that you know, it's not that an atheist doesn't believe in anything. It's that he'll believe in everything. That right. in the absence of any other kind of spiritual soul-nourishing belief you might have in your country and its meaning in the West and, 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 and liberty, you end up – if you're a kid looking around for something, end up with this sort of toxic death cult. Um, you know where everybody every uh, that one percent are in the Manson family essentially, right? And and uh, I don't know. That's all. That's all I got. It's terrifying. Make a funny joke now, Jonah. Uh, <laughs> okay, I got right. nothing for you. All right. <laughs> um, no, well, so guys, civilizational so guys, confidence is wait. the answer to everything. Yeah, you're right. So guys, speaking of civilizational <laughs> confidence. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, 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 and cultural and intellectual sources from which we derive it here in the United States, uh, you should check out acculturated.com where pop culture matters. Features there such as the Daily Scene, which uh, aggregates the best from the internet on hot pop culture topics, original posts every day on books, comics, culture, fashion, movies, games, sports, tech, TV from a perspective that – uh, listeners to this podcast and readers of Ricochet will uh, admire and appreciate featuring the writing of, of Emily Esfahani Smith, my dear friend Abby Schachter, R.J. Moeller, Mark Judge, and many more. Uh, this is a really wonderful website, uh, very different, something that a lot of us have talked about for a long time is the need for the right to make a full an unembarrassed reckoning uh, of of our relation to pop culture, its importance, and not and not simply be dismissive of it, but take its full measure. Um, and Ricochet readers, if you like this show, that's why you should really check out acculturated.com. Read what young conservative writers have to say on pop culture that isn't just pop culture should be thrown in the waste paper basket. Our thanks to acculturated.com for sponsoring this edition. Of uh, of glop culture and uh, and really it's a it's a it's a it's a terrific site. So yeah, now acculturated um, Jonah actually that's the Templeton people, and uh, Jonah and I are contributors to a couple of Templeton Press books. They're, they're, yeah, they're, they're doing really you know, good stuff. Uh, yeah. Really, uh, yeah. This uh, uh, recent book that uh, I think you're you're both in right by the edited by Jonathan Last yeah. the seven the seven deadly virtues which is. Uh, yes. And uh, which is really a, a a wonderful piece of work. So Templeton is doing a lot of good work, and Acculturated is 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 one of its finest products. Um, uh, now, speaking of, can I can I just say, speaking of fine products, yes. Um, <laughs> if you are listening, if you are listening to this podcast, you remember Ricochet. We are thrilled to have you. I've mentioned a couple times, but I also want to let you know that if you go to Ricochet, you don't have to be a member to read, and you don't have to be a member to get the Daily Shot, our new daily. Blast email, which gives you sort of the preview of the day's events, a kind of a roundup of everything that's happened the day before in our own little witty way. Um, and, wait, can I just, sure say, not can I just interrupt? Religious sensibilities. Yes. Can I interrupt and say the daily shot? The daily shot is just 
great. And you know, I get a lot of these I get a lot of these morning emails. We all do and everybody now produces them and they're, you know, it's all part of the, you know, the way the web works and um and uh this thing which which was started what like 2 months ago, 3 months ago yeah, is really months. a triumph. It's got a sensibility. It picks out interesting things. Um, it's, um, it's, it's very readable. It's very well laid out. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the last thing I needed in the morning was, you know, something else to read, but this is a, you know, it's an incredible pleasure. So I'm a big fan. I am a big fan. Was it voted the best conservative newsletter in America, the way the Goldberg file was? No. But no, again, that's good it wasn't it wasn't under consideration yet because it didn't exist when the votes were. <laughs> so no, wait. It's, but it's different. Wait, I mean, the Goldberg file, glo- by the way, was, wait, wait, was that a globe or was that a was that a W two? <laughs> <laughs> that was, was a, every, an was NW drunk. Was everybody drunk when they were voting? That's the, uh, well, we do have an open bar at the Goldberg file, so yeah. it's an N N N L W G uh, newsletter writers guild. Uh, you, you got a <laughs> you got an, uh, um, a lettery. An, uh, you got an emaily. Yeah, yeah, that's right. No, it'd be, you know, it'd be, a, it'd be called a blasty, right? Because e- we always call them email blasts. E- oh, wow, Jonah Goldberg won, a, won this year's Blasty Award. Blasty. You know, we should actually we should form a little yeah. guild, collect yeah. dues. Everyone gets a, some stationery, and uh, you know, and, and see if we can just sort of leech some uh, money out of these people. I think. It's oh, absolutely. Idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, vote for the Blasties. Are, are you going to the Blasty Awards? I'm going to go to the Blast. Where's the after party for the Blasties? Probably, you know, Olive Garden, but go ahead. You know, the greatest single detail that came out of the Globes, gossip detail, was that um, uh, Reese Witherspoon, um, being, of course, a a big star, uh, found it impossible to wait online for the ladies' room. So she went into the men's room because, you know, God forbid that she should wait online with, you know, the hoi polloi because she's two feet tall and, you know, and a producer and a star. So. But. I don't know. I'm not sure that warranted. At the Blasties. At the Blasties. (laughs) At the Blasties, we're going to have unisex. Everybody will have their own bathroom. (laughs) At the the Blasties, we'll all pee in troughs. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. So now that we've we've lowered ourselves to the level of Charlie Hebdo, the question would be – you know, the big political question of this week, and Jonah got a little bit into it in the the whole – uh, perspective on on you know how we are to look at this as as any kind of civilizational struggle with Islamism uh, is this really a, a gobsmacking uh, uh, decision by by the Obama administration to have nobody at the at the giant rally in Paris um, uh, on 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 the Sunday, which you know two million people attended, and heads of state, and you know we didn't have not only. We were told Eric Holder was going to be there and he didn't show up. Astonishingly enough, John Kerry, who seems to want to speak French even more frequently than Rob Long and would be very proud of his pronunciation of banlieue, banlieue. <laughs> and he would he really be say, fier. yeah, uh, didn't show up. Um, and it, it really is a kind of startling, you know, w- what is the Obama administration for if it isn't for holding hands, singing Kumbaya and marching and having a totally meaningless, you know, self-satisfied display of, you know, of, uh, you know, of moral support for, you know, whatever vague idea is present in the world, like free expression. 
I mean, it's a very odd thing, it seems to me. And it's inexplicable and nobody – and it's a mark of how bad the Washington media have gotten that nobody has gotten to the bottom of this. As, as why, we speak, wait, it's now – it's Of why they didn't? Of why no – of what happened because there is no way that there weren't conversations in the White House and at the State Department about who should you know, lead a formal delegation. Why wasn't Biden there? Why what, – what, forget Obama because maybe he should have gone. Maybe he shouldn't have gone but – Secretary that's why of State God invented vice there? presidents, right? I mean, that's why we have a vice president is to send him to shit like this. Yeah. But I find Stuff it, like I this, find sorry. it, I find it surprising that Obama didn't go. I mean, what what's your point? You point that, that they, they had a, a conversation, and then isn't this what a what a what a what a community organizer? This is what he lives for. No, exactly. Look, you go back and you read like his Berlin speech. No, I, I think these I think these rallies are, you know, are are meaningless by the way and and in some ways even maybe even counterproductive in the sense that they give people a sense that they've achieved something when they've achieved nothing and that, you know, in expressing their solidarity but, with Charlie Hebdo, they've done right. anything to move the ball on policy in some ways you could say that, you know, it it ends up being a cover for not doing anything. But wait, Jonah, what about the Berlin speech? Well, I'm just starting with, you know, I mean, first of all, I mean, always should be a red flag when a guy running for president of the United States campaigns in Berlin. But, um, you know, that that we are the world speech he gave in 2007, it's all I mean, if, if that guy is to be believed, then he should have been, you know, singing We Shall Overcome Arm in Arm in Paris yeah. this week, right. you know, and right. and, and I, I, look, I, I think basically this is all BS. I think this was a decision made by Barack Obama. Sure, he may have underestimated how big of an event this thing was going to be, but the idea that they didn't know 24 hours in advance that 40 world leaders were going to be there is nonsense. You got to remember, they, had, you know, the, the Obama administration attacked Charlie Hebdo in 2012. They came out their immediate, the only right. play, their only comfort zone after Benghazi was to talk about attack, uh, talk about locking up the movie producer. Right, who made that terrible video? That's the only thing they cared about. They these th- this administration is not friendly to the approach to things that Charlie Hebdo represents, and they've said so many, many times. They also are not friendly to the idea that the war on terror should be a galvanizing uh, issue politically here at home or in the West. They want to treat it as a much more minor thing, and lending his support. To, and showing up at that rally muddies both of those ideological narratives that I think this guy and Valerie Jarrett and a bunch of other people in there are deeply and powerfully yeah. committed to. They decided not to go because they didn't like it. But doesn't it, doesn't it seem strange to you that there's I – mean, I mean I know that – look, this is something that people always say uh, and it's a cliche so you can you know scream at me. But it's like there's nobody in – there's no smart person in charge in that White House. There's nobody saying, uh, yeah, I know, Mr. President, but you got to go. Here's why. Instead, it's all this kind of like petulant teenage, well, I'm not going to go. Well, you shouldn't go, Mr. President. Like you could just see the horrible conversation unfold between him and Valerie Jarrett, and there's nobody there with any stature. There's really nobody in that White House with any stature at all, is there? Like Fine, in the old days, you have said, somebody. Okay, so he didn't want to go. Nobody went. Yeah, no, that's right. That's that's, right. that's the thing yeah, that is right. astonishing. Right. <clears throat> Nobody went. So, um, and uh, I hear that this is you know an extremely dysfunctional White House at the present moment, and nothing is working, and all that. That's what it looks like from the outside, and that's what yeah. you know rumors are 
from the inside but 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 even so i think jonah's right like this wasn't this wasn't a sort of an act of um petulant you know there there there's something deeper going on here and um and it is of a piece with this decision you know not only to blame the video and blame charlie hebdo and for its own bombing in 2012 and all of that but this this notion that you, that by that by deciding that you are going to characterize your enemies in a certain way uh that you do that in order to you know justify your inaction is pretty startling if you think about it like in other words i'm going to define the problem so that for me it's not a problem you know eh, these are just a bunch of you know they're 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 j what, what did he say about the about isis they were jv players they're not kobe right. bryant i mean yes. the purpose of doing that is to say i'm defining this problem down so that it is no longer a problem they're j, you know we're america we don't play we don't play a jv squad great so we don't play a jv squad and the jv squad takes over a third of iraq in two months you know i mean <laughs> that's what happens when you don't play the j when you decide that something is a jv squad that clearly yeah I mean, is, there, there, there's squad. something powerful in obama's psyche that he thinks saying something is a substitute for doing something something and it's not just you know like i often you know you often hear him give speeches after like pressure builds he's got to say something about some problem and he gives a speech and you can almost see it, you know, behind his eyes, him thinking, well, now I've fixed this problem. I have checked yeah, this box. Right. And I think it's more metaphysical than, than anything. I mean, it's not just that he doesn't know how to run things. Um, I think that when he says something, he thinks it's got some sort of magical, realistic quality that it actually makes it so. So when he says it's the JV squad, he is sort of psychologically locked into the position that, that it must be true. And it's very hard to get him off of, right. you know, his pronouncements because he, he, he locks, you know, he's the guy who said from the very beginning, don't tell me they're just words. You know, he thinks that words have this magical power and represent actual change. And it, it's an incredibly dangerous position to have, you know, our view to have. Yeah, and you know what's more, I think it's not just it's not just that that he thinks that you know words you know words are words are the same as actions. These are incredibly difficult problems. Nobody, no rational person, thinks that these are soluble problems in two years or four years. You know, any kind of a civilizational struggle is not something that's going to be cured. You know, by by. You know, by uh, you know, three or four acts taken in the course of a year, and oddly, it's a kind of modesty to say, "Look, we're locked in a big battle here, yeah, and our enemies are very clever, and they they're in it for the long haul. They believe what they believe, and we have to take steps against them. And we're, you know, I mean, we're going to be doing what we can, and we can't do everything. And but you know, we know what the problem is, and the solution is a very complicated and long-term one. And you know, you I think you buy a lot of goodwill if you frame things in that fashion. Yeah, if you also, don't either pretend that they're that they're not problems, or you pretend that you have a solution. You know, I mean, no American president had the solution to international communism. It was a long struggle. We had to do this. We had to do that. We had good years. We had bad years. We had, you know, we had a lot of fights inside the country about whether how important the struggle was or wasn't. But nobody, you know, and if you want to take, you know, if you want to take the world seriously, you look at these things and you say these are very big 
And, you know, we're going to chip away. We can chip away at it. We can change the direction of things. We can help some people. You know, we can liberate some people from the yoke of tyranny. We can do X, we can, but we, you know, we can do what is practical. But if right. we do nothing and we pretend that the problem isn't a problem, the problem gets worse well, because well, there's also, no resistance. In the Cold War, in the fight against communism, we also didn't say this is a fight against ideological extremism. We said, right. no, it's a fight against communism. Right? Right, we actually right, right, identified right. the problem. And that's, that's the, the hubris involved in thinking that if – Josh Ernest and Maggie Scharf, whatever that chick's name is, if they don't use the word radical Islam, if they don't say Islam, that somehow cab drivers in Cairo won't think that this is a conflict with 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 nutter jihadis is insane. You talk to any any normal Muslim and they talk about those, you know, those crazy people, the jihadists, they say they're they're crazy jihadists but they don't deny that they're muslim they they may think that they got muslim wrong you know got islam wrong or something like that but the idea that somehow the pulpit of the white house is so powerful to right. erase to the rhetoric of of you know i mean they, they're all shouting alu akbar they're all saying yeah. they're avenging the prophet they're all saying they're doing this for islam they created a thing called the islamic state and we're supposed to believe this has nothing to do with islam i mean who's going to yeah, believe that Besides which, when is it in the power of, you know, of an American president to decide, you know, what the principles are for the excommunication of people from a different religion in other societies, you know? Yeah, that's, no, it's just that's, it's bizarre. That's the point, you know, if, 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 you know, if Obama got up and said that, you know, some, you know, some radical Jewish, you know, group that, you know, Baruch Goldstein, who, you know, killed... 29 people in Hebron was not a Jew. Like, of course he was a Jew. That's not the point. The point is what, what does it mean and how do other Jews react and how is Israel yeah. going to react and all of that? He but, was a bad know, one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are, cause there are bad, there are bad people, people. in every, in yeah. every society anyway. So, um, one last question to you guys. I have a column, uh, you know, wrote today. This is, um, as we're speaking Wednesday, the, the 14th, um, in which I posit that the you know that this remarkable outbreak of uh, Republican presidential activity in which you know it appears that Mitt Romney is probably going to declare his run for the presidency on Friday maybe uh, at the at, on on the on the on the deck of the USS Midway after Jeb Bush came out of the gate early that in fact um, a Jeb versus Mitt race uh, in the center is going to be of enormous practical benefit to the other candidates in the race because even though they're going to – because they're going to split uh -huh. the donor class, they're going to split the establishment vote, they're going to split the sort of 35 percent of, you know, of the main street vote that you know, likes guys like Jeb and, and Mitt and that they're going to – they're providing a real opening for – six or seven other people when the fall comes around, the debates happen because, you know, the center is going to be split and the fight is going to then going to be among the, you know, 70% on the right who will make the decision about who's going to be the nominee. Anybody have a reaction to that? Yeah, I'm just stupid. <laughs> What's my reaction? Stupid. Republican primary voters throughout history – now, maybe to, this year is different or this cycle is different. But throughout history, Republican primary voters, the, the conservatives and the liberals and the, the rhinos and the squishes, vote for the next guy. They end up voting for the next guy. Yeah, but who's the next guy? 
Who's well, the I mean, next the, guy? No, no, no. I mean the next guy. The, ne- the, the next guy in line, whoever they think that person is. Right, they don't. They the don't vote. With Mitt. They don't that's vote. The they don't say, "Oh, I'm going to vote for the outlier." Now, maybe it's tr- maybe I don't know. Why, why is why is why are Mitt and Jeb to be more centrist than Scott Walker? Right. No. When I, mean, I but, say but, centrist, so, but the, the, the problem the problem with that, and I mean, you're absolutely right. As a matter, you know, with a couple exceptions, you're absolutely right that since going back to Thomas Dewey, that's yeah. the pattern. But it's not because you know this gets missed understood in the mainstream media a lot this idea that republicans pick the guy next in line because we're just sort of country club types and if you did your term as treasurer then you're the vice president eventually you get to be president of the club that's not the reason why it happened it has to do with the structure of the way this happened what happens is is that the guy the next in line guy let's say papa bush right he's vice president well he runs against reagan in 80 he comes in second he becomes reagan's vice president and then it's his turn to run in 88, right? And that's sort of the pattern that we're talking about. Same thing you could talk about McCain or Romney in 2008. But the reason why they end up getting the nomination isn't because it's their turn. It's because for the, previous, for the next four years after they came in second, they spent those four years or eight years wooing the right. base of the party, right? That's and so fine. George H.W. Bush becomes much more right-wing as vice president, becomes pro-life, talks to the pro-life people, and he moves right. And Bob Dole did that. McCain did that. Romney did that. And so, you know, this. But, but the only person who's saying he's not going to do that is Jeb. Jeb. Yeah. So but that's why I think it's kind of a silly. Uh, it's a silly kind of a um, uh, you know overly strategized philosophy. Look, like, you know, the guys who can raise the money past South Carolina and have money left in the bank are the ones who are going to be standing. And they'll probably be center right candidates who we may if they go down in flames as they did with Mitt Romney say we're conservative enough or we may say if they go down in flames are too conservative well that rarely happens um it's kind of silly to think about it look the people who are going to have trouble raising cash right now are probably the values the values candidates Santorum and Huckabee Okay, that's, I miss, the only, look, that's the only finite pot, I think. I, I mischaracterize this. Let me put it this way because I think that both Jeb and you know, Mitt are by any conventional standards. You know, Right now, if they ran for president, they would be the most conservative person ever to run for president in terms of a platform. So I, I think the entire party's shift to the right means that every candidate you know, functions as a conservative. There's no liberals. There's no moderates. They're all conservatives of a different hue. I just mean they are the – Donor class candidates. They're the ones that, you know, people in New York at hedge funds and various other places know the best and, you know, have the most experience with and have, you know, have personal relationships with. And that, and that, that group, um, may, may, you know, the, the power of that group may be diluted by the fact that there are two people occupying that space. You know, and I that, think that you're right opens about that. up all sorts of space, and everybody in the race is on the right. I don't mean, I mean, I'm not talking about values. Right? I mean, Walker's a conservative, Rubio's a conservative, Jindal's a conservative, Mike Pence is a conservative. Right. You know, um, uh, Ted Cruz is a conservative. <laughs> Rand right. Paul is sort of something else. You know, under some understandings, there and you know, and this is such an so much more immensely impressive field to run. Then in 2012, you know, it's not the clown car of 2012. It's going to be, you know, maybe three or four governors and three or four, you know, senators, all of whom are really good on their feet. They talk well. Yeah, they're right. smart. They know policy. They've, they've already gotten millions of votes. 
and the guy, and, and they've all been te- all the real candidates have been tested in 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 bruising elections already. Uh, you know, Scott Walker, Jeb Bush, Mitt Romney, uh, a few of the others have already been. You know, they had some stink on them, so they kind of know what's coming. Um, they don't have to take you know media lessons. Uh, the High Wire Act won't be really as much as uh, in effect as it's been in the past. I think. Yeah, I mean, if your point is is that this is good for the other protagonists because Jeb now has to fight a two front war, and he's <laughs> diluted in the money primary. I think that's absolutely right. I also just think it needs to be said: it is bananas that Mitt Romney, Mitt Romney is running again. The man should not run again. I mean, I look at free country; he's allowed to run again, and yeah. all that kind of yeah. stuff, and all that. But like, I think he's a lot like John Kerry. He thinks. You know, John Kerry and you know thought about it in two thousand eight because he won a lot of votes running against George Bush, and he thought those all those votes were for him rather than against George Bush. Mitt Romney got a lot of votes, but his whole campaign was, and Stuart Stevens was so honest about this, and this is why so many of us beat up on Stuart Stevens. His whole campaign was run as a referendum on Barack Obama. You can't run mm-hmm. a campaign that's completely absent of ideas as a referendum on Barack Obama, and then say, "Well, hey, look." That vote tally I got, those were all votes for me and not against Barack Obama. It doesn't work like that. And history will be very unkind to this guy if he does this Thomas Dewey crap and runs runs for the nomination, gets it again, and loses. I mean, he doesn't want to go down in history as a loser. Try losing it twice. My God. Right. But I will say this, which is, uh, you know— if you look at polling, and that's what people do in this, you know, I'm sure he's taken private <laughs> right. polls and all this. He's at the top of the polls. Yeah. Well, and, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I don't believe. I don't think it matters because I, I think, it, I think, if any race is going to be about remorse. the future, it's not if, for right? If any race is going to be about the future, it is going to be 2016, and you have guys. For, you know, you've got yeah. you've got you've got two forty you've got two forty three year olds you've got two forty four year olds you've got you know the you, you know Rand Paul is the oldest person in the field aside from Jeb and among, among other things they're both in their sixties. Mitt's going to be sixty eight years old next month. You know, and part of the dynamic and the Republican Party's own dynamic is going to be there is Hillary sitting there like you know Queen Victoria and she's going to be you know sixty nine years old. And 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 uh, you know we're, her entire her entire presence is a referendum on the past, right? Right. It's about Obama and Clinton, and these guys, whoever they are, whatever weaknesses they have, they are fighting battles in the present about the future. All of them, Walker, <laughs> which is good, yeah. right? And they will be able to say, and by the way, be able to say to Jeb, look, you're a great guy, but not only do you have the name Bush, and we're not a dynastic country, but you know where have you been for ten years? Yeah. You got out of politics. That's right. great for you. I'm really happy for you. But you know, I'm in there fighting the public sector unions. We're fighting Obamacare on the Hill. You know, this one's doing this, that one's doing that. What have what have you what are you doing? What right. have you right. done? What have you done in this time of crisis to help the country? That's what we've been doing. And that's going to be a very potent more potent argument this time than than practically any other time because also, you know, I think Jeb has another problem, right? The, the problem with Jeb is that even people who like him and admire him feel weird about voting for him. Yeah. That's not – you don't want to start your campaign with people who – with your supporters saying, yeah, but I can't do it. 
because yeah. I don't because the dynastic the, the dynastic business is really what bugs me. Like, what are we Brazil now, or or some weird banana republic where the son and the brother and the daughter and the wife and the president get to be pre- It's ridiculous. Yeah, and I've um, said this before. I've said yeah. this before on the show, but you know, Walker is the son of a preacher. Cruz is the son of a yeah. preacher. Um, uh, you know, Rubio is the son of somebody who worked in a hotel. You know, I mean, right. these are real war. You know, uh, yeah. Jindal is the son of immigrants. Like. Cruz and Ruby are the son of you know sons of immigrants. Like these are, you know, these are guys who have an American story to tell that is not the, you know, in a at a populist moment they are better stewards of you know of of the populist mood than these guys would be. And I think Jeb is, was a remarkably good governor and a very yeah. very smart. And I think better of Romney in some ways than a lot of people do. But I, but it's just. I don't think that whether or not they should run or they shouldn't run or they can or they can or something like that, this is not their time. This is not the time for these guys. And the very fact that they're out of the gate so early itself may be a marker of that because like, you know, in a horse race, in a, you know, in, a, in, a, in an immensely long furlong horse race or in a marathon or something, you don't want to be the front runner <laughs> or, you know, early. You burn out like you've got to preserve your energy for the, you know, for the home stretch. Like, the, the, you know, it's it's a sign of weakness to jump in early, not a sign of strength. That's my yeah, view. I, mean, Je- I mean, the thing is Jeb's strategy, which is very much like W's in 99, is to amass this unbelievable war chest. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, and that has real power. It certainly has power in terms of clearing out competition on the establishment side, right? On the right, but but remember, W set up this big war chest and ran as the candidate of the social conservatives. Both. Yeah, no, right. I know. That's and, the, so and, the, and, the, and the outside of and the outside of Washington. Right. I mean, but also he ran two. I mean, this is so so boring and, and, and politically wonky. But you know, in two thousand, he ran basically two primary campaigns. He ran one, and then when it didn't work against the Maverick. Um, uh, the the re- Maverick reformer message that McCain was you know McCain was making deep inroads. He basically stopped and redid a campaign. That's right. what the money came from. The money came from he had so much money he 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 could redo a campaign on the fly, which is a very expensive thing to do. So uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I I don't I, I don't know one Republican uh, who's not excited about having a choice. And the excitement of the choice. I don't know one Republican right now who wasn't saying, um, you know, I can't wait for this to start because I can't wait to hear all these guys because I think they're all kind of interesting rather than, oh, no. Oh, God. Oh, I hope that. So in a way, if you run early right now and you feel like you're trying to sort of preemptively be the front runner, it does feel like you're kind of stealing the fun out of it. For a lot of Republican voters, primary voters, the Republican primary who we're talking about. And I'm not sure it's going to work this year. I'm not right. sure it's gonna it's gonna matter. Yeah, I don't think so either. So on that <clears throat> on that note, uh, as we you know we'll, we're gonna have the exact same conversation <laughs> the next time we do the Glob podcast. Uh, Jonah, do you have anything you want to tell all the folks about on a wintry mix January? Oh, uh, <laughs> wintry mix. Me, where are you me, going? Um, what you doing? Yeah, let me look. I'm, I'm coming. I'm coming to the University of Michigan in February. Um, I just need to figure out when that is. Um, one second. Oh, uh, so February 12th, I'm at the University of Michigan, and also on January. 
I should know this off the top of my head. January 22nd, I am speaking for the Beacon Institute in oh. Chattanooga, Tennessee. Ah, oh, wow. When I was 13, I stayed at the Chattanooga Choo Choo Hilton Hotel. Nice. Which was in a train car. I don't even know if it still exists. That was 30 years ago, but it was it was the most awesome hotel for a 13 year old to sleep in a train car at the abandoned. Can I say, can I just say that the thought of the 13 year old John Podoritz going into the Chattanooga Choo Choo Hotel is adorable. (laughs) You are so right. You are so right. It's the most adorable thing I can think of is going to happen to me today. Because, you know, Rob, you leave the Pennsylvania Station about a quarter to four. We can't afford afford any more. ASCAP has spies everywhere, John. We can't afford to have you sing. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, (laughs) Rob, are you – do you have anything you want to tell the people? No, I'm not doing anything. I'm just – please. Yeah, I'm not doing anything either except, of course, uh, my standard gig at the Giggles in West Nyack, New York. If I don't say that, people go on Twitter and say, what, you're not at the – Giggles in Dang. West Nyack, New York. So That'd I'm at the right. Giggles in, in West Nyack, New York, and I will, of course, <laughs> be opening for Bill Cosby. Uh, <laughs> we didn't talk about that, did we? He made a joke no, about it in the show. He made a yeah. joke about it. He yeah, said, hey, you don't want you to be careful drinking around me. Um, <laughs> that you know, seems – yeah. <laughs> By the way, speaking of speak, – speak I mean, it's people. sick and twisted and, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know pe- people with uh, weird personal habits, you know, just to close out. So, you know, Woody Allen – there was this announcement that Woody Allen's going to have a, a half-hour show on uh, Amazon. On Amazon. Um, and uh, there were some fantastic tweets, proposals um, – you know, of titles for the for the show. And and Greg Polowitz, who who does some work for National Review, I think had the best one. He said the title of the show should be Married My Children. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and, and with that and with that we say uh we say uh please enjoy the wintry mix of January and we'll uh we'll we will play the wintry mix today. Yeah. The wintry mix and we will uh We will be back to you in a bit. Thanks a lot. See you soon, fellas. Peter. Bam, bam, mon ça se passe, j'ai sur mon lit à bouffer sa langue en buvant trop mon whisky. Quant à moi, peu dormi, vie débris, mais j'ai dû dormir dans la gouttière où j'ai eu un flash. En quatre couleurs. Allez hop, un matin, une louloute est venue chez moi, poupée de cellophane, cheveux chinois. Un sparadrap, une gueule de bois A bu ma bière dans un grand verre en caoutchouc Comme un agnès dans son igloo Ça plane pour moi Ça plane pour moi Ça plane pour moi, 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 moi Ça plane pour moi
Ricochet. Join the conversation. Les vieilles, le barbe, les sans seuls. 